Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I do believe that he was taken from us to bring change. This was all a part of God's plan, and we will get change. I'm Mandy Hassan. Welcome to Deconstructed, a new podcast from The Intercept. I've been writing columns and op-eds, producing and presenting TV shows uh, for nearly two decades now. But I'll tell you what, doing a podcast for the first time in my life is such a unique opportunity. It gives me such a unique platform. And it's so good to be with you all each week to chew the political fat, get past the media spin, deconstruct the headlines, and make sure you hear from people who really need to be heard from. This week, the week we commemorated the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, this week I'll speak not just to a brilliant young author and academic who breaks down racism in the most eloquent yet bluntest of terms, but also to the fiancé of the latest high-profile and fatal victim of two seemingly trigger-happy police officers, Stefan Clark. And then I get another phone call from his grandma saying they murdered him, they murdered him and they killed him. They killed little Papa and then she hung up. It's one of the hardest interviews I've ever had to do. And that conversation with Selena Manny on Deconstructed is coming up in full in a moment. It's week three. Let's talk black lives in America and why they still don't seem to matter. We've had all the turmoil in New York City over this Diallo case. And I don't want, as I said before, I don't pretend to, for a moment to second-guess the jury. I didn't sit there and listen to the evidence. But I know most people in America of all races believe that if it had been a young white man in a young all-white neighborhood, it probably wouldn't have happened. My first exposure to, my first memory of a story involving a U.S. police officer killing an innocent young black man as a young British college student was the gunning down of Amadou Diallo in New York in 1999. I remember watching a Michael Moore special on that case. Amadou Diallo was a 23-year-old immigrant from Guinea in West Africa who came to New York in 1996 and became a street vendor. While returning home one night in Harlem, he was mistaken by four New York Police Department officers for a rape suspect. And when he pulled out his wallet, they thought it was a gun. They fired 41 bullets at him. 41 bullets, 19 of which hit him and killed him. All four of those officers were charged with second-degree murder. All four of those officers were acquitted of second-degree murder. One of them was even later promoted. And I couldn't help but think of Amadou Diallo when I heard the horrific, tragic, and recent story of Stefan Clark, which I want to talk about on today's show. When two Sacramento Stop. police officers Stop. confronted Stefan Clark in his grandparents' backyard, they fired 20 shots. Stefan was shot and killed last month by two police officers from the Sacramento Police Department in California who were looking for a guy breaking car windows in his neighborhood. They saw Stefan in his grandmother's yard, mistook his iPhone for a gun, and fired 20 bullets at him, eight of which hit him 
and killed him. Amadou Diallo had a wallet. Stefan Clark had a cell phone. Amadou Diallo was 23. Stefan Clark was 22. He was engaged and the father to two small boys. Today, we're gathered to memorialize and to subsequently bury Stefan Clark. But yesterday it was Ahmed, Ahmedou Diallo and Sean Bell and Trayvon Martin, Walter Scott, Gary King, Oscar Grant, Alan Bluford, Tamir Rice, John Crawford, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, Eric Gardner. The community is rightfully pained, is rightfully angered, is rightfully frustrated to borrow from the poet because we built our coffins much too often and we're tired of seeing our people die. That was the California Imam Zaid Shakir speaking at a memorial for Stefan, who was a Muslim, and reminding us that the black community is rightfully pained, rightfully angry, rightfully frustrated, not just about the constant killings, but the constant lies. At first, the police in Sacramento said Stefan had a toolbar in his hand. He didn't. They said he was rushing towards them. And yet a private autopsy commissioned by the family found eight of the 20 bullets hit Stefan Six of them hit him in the back. In the back. The findings of his autopsy contradict many of the narratives that the Sacramento police put forward. Now, I'm no ballistics expert, but how do you get shot in the back if you're rushing towards your shooter? There's a big investigation, a big inquiry expected into all of this. But right now, it looks like the police shot dead a man who was not just unarmed, but running away from them. And even if he was guilty of breaking car windows, and there's not a shred of evidence to suggest he was, that's not even a crime that deserves the death penalty. The reality is, as Bill Clinton said nearly two decades ago about Amadou Diallo, that Stefan Clark would probably be alive today were he a white guy living in a nice white neighborhood. We all kind of know that. And it's so tragic, so frustrating, that so little has changed in the nearly 20 years since Amadou Diallo was gunned down. I mean, don't get me wrong, the Clintons weren't great on race, remember the whole super predator stuff, but even Bill spoke out at the time about the racism involved in that shooting. And yet today you have a white nationalist president sitting in the Oval Office who, unlike Bill Clinton, unlike Barack Obama, has nothing to say about racism or the innocent victims, the innocent black victims of police violence like Stefan Clark. Listen to White House spinner-in-chief Sarah Huckabee Sanders when she was asked about this story the other day. Uh, Certainly a a terrible incident. Uh, This is something that is a uh, local matter, and that's something that we feel should be left up to the local authorities at this point in time. Local matter. Local matter. Are you kidding me? This is a president who is obsessed with almost every murder that takes place in Chicago. How is that not a local matter? Who obsesses over every crime committed by an undocumented migrant in a sanctuary city? How is that not a local matter? In fact, this is a president who not only stays conveniently silent when it comes to anti-black violence by the police, but actually endorses and encourages police brutality. I said, please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, you know, the way you put their hand over. Like, don't hit their head and they've just killed somebody. Don't hit their head. 
I said, you can take the hand away, okay? And this is a man, remember, who can't stand the idea of black people peacefully protesting the killing of other black people at the hands of the police. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag? To say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! But of course, he doesn't like people protesting racism because Donald Trump has always believed that white people are the real victims of racism. I kid you not. This is him speaking nearly 30 years ago, back in 1999 on NBC. A well-educated black has a tremendous advantage over a well-educated white in terms of the job market. I've said on occasion, even about myself, if I were starting off today, I would love to be a well-educated black because I really believe they do have an actual advantage today. See, in this president's warped worldview and in the warped worldview of so many of his followers and fans, it's white people, not black people, white people who are the oppressed and persecuted ones. That's partly why it's so hard to get millions of white Americans, especially, but not exclusively, conservative white Americans, to take institutionalized racism, systemic discrimination, police brutality against black people seriously, to get them to make it a political and moral priority that needs resolving now. So how do we get them to do that? How do we get through to those people who have buried their heads in the sand, even as black parents, bury their young kids in the ground. In a moment, I'm going to talk to a real expert on race relations and racism in America, the acclaimed author and academic Ibram X. Kendi. But before that discussion with him, I'm going to speak with Selena Manny, fiancé to the late Stefan Clark and mother to their two boys, Aidan, aged three, and Cairo, aged just one. Selena Manny, thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. I am so, so sorry for your loss and what you've gone through. I can't imagine what you must be going through now. Can I just ask by asking you to tell our listeners about Stefan, about about him, what was he like? He was really loving and caring. He always wanted to be around me, the kids. He wanted, he just wanted to be around love. I mean, like he would do anything for you. Like you wouldn't even have to ask him to do anything for you. Like he would just do it out of the kindness of, of his heart. And you two were together, I think five years you were together? About five years, yes. And you were gonna get married? Yes, eventually. And what's your memory of that night? Where were you when, you when you heard that horrific news, when you were told what had happened to Stefan? I was home in bed with my kids, and I got a phone call from his grandma telling me that she heard gunshots in, the back, in her backyard. And she was calling to make sure that me and the kids and Papa were okay, and Papa is Stefan. And I had told her that me and the kids were okay and that Stefan wasn't with us that day. And then I get another phone call from his grandma about maybe like 10, 15 minutes later saying they murdered him, they murdered him, and they killed him. They killed little Papa, and then she hung up. And then it kind of hit me a little bit because he wasn't answering, and I didn't know where he was. 
it's I still didn't want to believe it. And then finally, when I called his brother, he said, yeah, it was him that he was standing in front of the scene. And then that's when it like really hit me. And I finally realized that, you know, he was gone. And he had two young sons. You have two boys, Cairo and Aiden. You now have to bring them up on your own for now without their dad. Yeah, it's definitely hard when they ask for him every day and they were so used to being around him every day and now he's just gone. Like every day they're wondering, where is my dad? You know, where is my dad? Are we going to go see daddy today? And I don't want it to hurt them in a way, you know, without me being able to explain it to them and letting them understand, you know, because whatever's out on the media too is not who their dad is. I want to be able to explain to them who their dad really was and that he actually loved them and was there for them and that he actually wanted to be there in their lives. He wanted to be the best father he could be. So, Did Stefan himself, as a young black man, you knew him for many years, did he ever talk about being distrustful of the police, being afraid of the police? Had you ever had those conversations with him? Oh, yeah, he's definitely, I've definitely had those conversations with him. He would be afraid for being a black man in America because he wouldn't know, like, if he were to get stopped or anything, he wouldn't know what was going to happen to him. He was definitely afraid. How do you think Sacramento Police Department have handled this whole issue? I mean, they, they said he had a toolbar in his hand. He didn't. They said he charged the officers. But the autopsy from, from, from his family that was commissioned from, from you guys seems to show he was shot in the back. What do you think the response of the Sacramento Police Department has been like? Well, in my regards, I want to let them know when they shoot someone, it affects more than the person that they kill. Here, me, my children, my family, and Stefan's family, we're all suffering. The shooting of an unarmed man, it's caused unrest within our family, unrest within the community, and we seek justice for my love. That's all we want. Do you think the police... Uh, lied to you and your family and to the world in the aftermath of what happened? I do. And there's going to be an inquiry and investigation. Do you have confidence that there will be justice will be done in, in, in your fiance's case? I do. I do believe that he was taken from us to bring change. This was all a part of God's plan, and we will get change. You talk about change. There have been a lot of protests and vigils for several days now in Sacramento. I know you've attended a lot of them. What is the main purpose of those protests and vigils? To get justice, to change the legal systems, to change all the laws that they have within the police department, sheriff's department. We just need change. You know, We need to make sure that innocent people are not getting killed for no reason. The White House says this is a local matter. The White House was asked about uh, Stefan's killing the other day in a press conference. And they said it's a local matter. It's not for the president to comment on. Um, do you wish the president of the United States had said something? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Think so far about this? I do. I, I wish he would have, you know, made it bigger than, like he said, it was a local matter because it's not a local matter. This is happening all over America. So it's bigger than that. And he should have, you know, said something. He should have had, he should have been able to say something more than that because it's not just happening here. It is a national issue. And I want to let the president know, like, we urge you, Mr. President, to help us get justice for our family and justice for all families that have lost any loved ones by police brutality. There's there's just so much more to it that he could be speaking about, and we ask for his help. And just on Stefan, what do you most remember about him, about your fiancé? What's, what's, what's your most cherished memory of him? We were just always together as a family. We'd always do everything together as a family, whether we'd be home just together watching movies, eating dinner, playing the games, whatever we were doing, we were just always together as a family. And that's what he'd always wanted. He always wanted family. He always wanted love. And we wanted to make sure our kids had that love as well. I grew up with both parents. He grew up with only his mother. So he wanted to make sure his kids had both the love he never had it. And I wanted to give my kids everything better than I had. So we made, we made sure our love was strong for our kids. Our bond was strong for our kids. We were, we were just happy as a whole. As long as we were together as a family, there was nothing that could break us. We were inseparable. Selena, so sad to hear you talk about this. I can't imagine what you're going through, and, and I can only give you condolences from me and everyone listening. We're so sorry for your loss, and, and we pray for Stefan and for you guys. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We all really appreciate it. You know, you hear stories like that. You listen to people speaking about their pain in that way and the injustice that's been done. And your heart breaks and you get mad. You get angry. It doesn't matter what color or race or ethnicity you are. You can't deny that pain. You can't deny that unfairness, that injustice. And normally, that would motivate a lot of us to take action, to not tolerate the situation we find ourselves in, in terms of police violence and police shootings. But the problem is that in America today, there's so much misinformation, so many myths that are put out, that are used to deflect, to distract, to divert from the core injustice of anti-black violence, of seemingly never-ending police killings. And I want to deal with a couple of those myths. Number one, you often hear people say, well, this isn't a race issue. Yes, unarmed black men are killed by the police, but so are unarmed white men. It's not just black people being gunned down by the police. It's not a race issue. But that's complete BS. The fact is that black Americans are much more likely to be shot and killed by the police than white Americans. That's just a fact, a statistical fact. In 2012, 31% of the people killed by the police were black. 
even though only 13% of the people in the US are black. In fact, black drivers are more likely to be stopped, searched, and arrested than white drivers. Black defendants are more likely to get a longer sentence for committing the same federal crime as white defendants. Black people are more likely to be sent to prison for a crime they didn't commit than white people. The law enforcement, the criminal justice systems in this country are riddled with racism from top to bottom. The second argument, quote unquote, argument that is put out there on the issue of Black Lives Matter and police brutality is that police killings of black men aren't the real issue. Black on black killings are the real issue. That's how most black men lose their lives in quote unquote black on black killings. The truth is that there's no such thing as a black on black killing. There isn't. It's a completely made up term because if there was such a thing as black on black killings, there would also be such a thing as white on white killings. After all, yes, according to FBI data in 2016, 90% of black victims of homicide were killed by other black people. But you know what? 83.5% of white victims of homicide in that same year were killed by other white people. But when was the last time you heard white on white killings being discussed on Fox News? or on the op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal. It's a distraction, black-on-black killings. It's a deflection from what is essentially state-sponsored violence against young black men. That is what these police shootings, these police killings are, and why they need to be so urgently tackled. I want to talk about some of these double standards, these challenges in more detail with someone I consider to be one of America's leading new voices on race relations and specifically on anti-black racism, Ibram X. Kendi, who is a professor at the American University here in Washington, D.C., and author of Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which won the 2016 National Book Award for nonfiction, and according to one reviewer, will, quote, forever change the way we think about race. Ibram X. Kendi, thank you so much for joining me on Deconstructed. Um, We often hear this phrase that a lot of the police violence meted out uh, towards black people in black communities is structural. Uh, Explain to our listeners what that actually means. Well, first and foremost, I think police have the power to get away with violence because police officers are typically investigated by other police officers, and they also are allowed to put forth a a defense of what I felt I feared for my life. And so police regulations allow them to shoot to kill whenever they fear for their life. So they are allowed to continue to get waived with it because of those structural policies. How much do you think Americans as a whole need to come to terms with the history of racist ideas and people in this country? One of the figures you focus on in your book, Stamped from the Beginning, is Thomas Jefferson, founding father, president, slave owner. His statue, his memorial isn't far from where I'm sitting uh, right now. What do you think Americans need to know about Jefferson, for example, which would help them understand how to save black lives today? To me, uh, knowing the history of Jefferson, it was not surprising that white supremacists who are pushing for what they call a white ethnostate, uh, marched most popularly in Charlottesville, which is, of course, the, the iconic home um, of Jefferson, and, and marched through the University of Virginia, which was built by Jefferson. Because Jefferson, in the 19th century, was the most prominent advocate of a white ethnostate. 
he was a pusher of what was known as colonization, in which Americans, particularly racial moderates, were imagining that the best way to solve the race problem was to get rid of black people. You, you have people who worship Thomas Jefferson and disavow white supremacists when they both advocated a white ethnostate. And then you have a president of the United States who simultaneously his policies are creating or seeking to maintain a white ethnostate, policies of mass incarcerating and mass deporting and mass killing. We hear the phrase white supremacy bandied around a lot these days. And some white liberals, not just conservatives, but white liberals as well, have gotten annoyed with it and say it should be reserved for outright racists, for the Ku Klux Klan, uh, and not for the Republican Party or the police force. What do you say to them? I say to them, how do you define white supremacy? Because if white supremacy means that white people are supreme, then white people are supreme, or at least their ideas uh, are supreme uh, within the policing forces that are killing black and brown bodies with impunity. They, their bodies are supreme in the U.S. Senate. Their bodies have historically been supreme in the White House, in the governorships, on the Supreme Courts, uh, in the halls of executive power and corporations, in the people determining curriculums. And so I, I would ask them, how do they define white supremacy if they're not defining it as those whose uh, white people are supreme? You wrote recently in the New York Times that the denial of racism is the heartbeat of racism, and I completely agree with that. But what is the way you persuade uh, people, especially white people who feel uncomfortable about you know, talking about white supremacy and talking about a history of racism? How do you get them to get past the denial? Is there a strategy? Is there a particular approach that you take in your conversations? Well, I think one of the things that white people do not realize, particularly white middle income and working and, 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 and impoverished white people do, do not realize, is that in many ways, historically, racist ideas and policies have actually not been in their self-interest. They've been led to believe that it's in their self-interest. You know, we're, we're taught about the ways in which black bodies have been mass incarcerated, you know, as a result of these tough-on-crime policies. But white people are not taught how those very same tough-on-crime politicians were steering money away from their public schools, their public universities, social programs that benefited their families for incarceration in the military, which simultaneously led to this growing disparities between white middle-income people and white upper-income people. And so we call this economic inequality, and people like Bernie Sanders have brought attention to this. But this is, of course, harming white people uh, writ large. You mentioned Senator Sanders. Right now, the left in America is having a big debate about whether it's race or class that's the real challenge going forward. It's something I touched on with Bernie Sanders in a recent interview on this podcast. Do you think the left in the U.S. has got that balance right in terms of the attention paid to race versus class? I think we should pay attention to both. And I don't understand why it always has to be these either or scenarios. In truly having a fundamental understanding about class divides, you'll also have a fundamental understanding about racial divides. So I try not to divide them. One of the things I was talking about earlier on the show is some of the myths and misinformation that's put out when it comes to the debate over racism, over police killings. You always hear this nonsense about black on black killings, which is a completely made up concept. Uh, you, you hear all this kind of nonstop propaganda all the time. 
when you write about this stuff and talk about this stuff and travel around the country lecturing on this stuff, what's the most frustrating thing you hear that really winds you up when you talk about this subject that really irritates you? <laughs> wow, it's uh, there's this. I, I think the concept of not racist, which is a category and even an identity that almost every racist American in history <laughs> has actually wrapped themselves in. So I think Americans like to imagine that they are racist and quote, not racist. <laughs> and and typically the, the category of not racist emerges when somebody is charged with racism. Oh yeah. Oh, my friend, my colleague is not racist. But there's no such thing as a not racism, categorically. You, either you believe in racial equality as an anti-racist, or you believe in racial hierarchy as a racist. There's no not racism. There's only two philosophical and historical categories, and that's racism and anti-racism. That's a very fascinating point. Let me ask you this before we finish. Are you an optimist or a pessimist when it comes to racism and race relations and overcoming bigotry in the United States of America? Right now, a lot of us are very pessimistic when we look out and see who's in the White House, what's going on uh, across America. When you look at what happened to Stefan Clark in Sacramento, it's hard to be anything other than pessimistic. Well, I think it, it is easier to be pessimistic based on everything that we have witnessed. At the same time, I know philosophically that you have to believe change is possible in order to bring it about. I think the greatest activists and change agents in history have been philosophically optimistic. And it was that optimism that motivated them consistently, especially during difficult Trumpian moments, to imagine that their was a possibility you know, of an anti-racist place or an anti-racist nation or world. And so I, I'm, I'm an optimist, not necessarily because I'm, I'm, I'm not aware of everything that's going on, but I'm an optimist because I believe in order to truly bring about change, in order to truly be an effective change agent, you have to believe change is possible. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept and is distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Zach Young. Lital Mollard is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw and Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every Friday. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice. And if you're new to podcasts, we've got all the info there. Please do subscribe, whether you're on an iPhone or an Android or whatever. That means this podcast will automatically download to your device every time a new episode is available. You won't miss any, and you don't want to miss any now, do you? If you're subscribed already, thanks so much. But please also go and leave us a rating or review. It helps other people find this show. Thanks, and see you next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. 
Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.